0: and i would like to think that some version of that is going to continue going forward
1: i mean any cinema is a micro cinema would it set 25% capacity pretty much <laughs>
0: that's a good point yeah, yeah. that's true This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, the Editorial Director of the Box Office Studios, and I'm joined by Daniel Luria, the Editorial Director of Box Office Pro, and Rebecca Polly, the Deputy Editor of Box Office Pro. And this week we have a few different things to talk about. We have box office results, including the continued upward performance of Demon Slayer. Marvel in sort of a, hey, the movies are great, let's go back to the movies announcement. Also revealed some details about upcoming titles and we have a couple of other points to discuss. And that's all before we feature a panel of exhibitor execs talking about private rentals. So let's do the news. Daniel, Demon Slayer continues to slay. Did I do that right?
2: Yeah, I think that qualifies as a pun. Good job, we we can check that off the list.
0: (laughs) Okay, cool, cool, cool.
2: Well, I don't know if we can even say that quite well. It did as we expected it to do. So, Sean Robbins on this podcast, we'd asked him, "Hey, what are your expectations as our chief analyst here looking at the box office of a title like Demon Slayer in its second weekend?" Sean brought up the example of Dragon Ball uh, Super Broly, which is the last anime title to have opened at around 20 million here in North America, and he warned, "Hey, These movies are very front-loaded. This might happen to Demon Slayer, and that's precisely what happened. We saw a 70%-plus drop for Demon Slayer in its sophomore frame, coming in at 6.4 million in its second weekend. But that was enough to leave the box office, which is an important detail looking at the other films that are on the market. And seeing that this is coming from a very small distributor like Funimation. Demon Slayer topping the box office, as I mentioned, that 6.4 million take, followed in second place, Mortal Kombat with 6.2 million. Of course, Demon Slayer is only available in theaters right now. The folks that didn't watch Mortal Kombat on opening weekend talked about it with their friends. Well, looks like some of them decided to watch it at home. Another big 70% plus drop for a Warner Brothers title here in the box office. I think that we can confidently say at this point, with the exception of family titles, this is looking like a trend now. These big drops in sophomore frames for films that go day and date from studios.
1: Daniel, I actually had the opportunity to speak to Mitchell Berger, who's the senior vice president of global commerce at Funimation. If you go to boxofficepro.com, you can see that piece. We did talk about Funimation's philosophy towards theatrical distribution. As you mentioned, they did go exclusively to theaters first, and it certainly is something that Funimation, you know, as a distributor, is quite passionate about. So it's an interesting interview. You can go to boxofficepro.com now to check that out.
0: You know, talking about that pattern of drop off, especially especially with respect to abuse from studios. One of the next big movies we're looking at this year is Marvel's Black Widow, which is set to open on July 9. Black Widow was, of course, originally slated to open just after the pandemic hit in 2020. It was delayed a couple of times. Hopefully now this July date seems set. It seems like it's fully in place. And while Marvel is doing a day and date release, it is one of the films that you're going to have to pay extra to see on Disney+, Plus, which is something that might hopefully help the theatrical experience a little bit. And it will also benefit from debuting at a point when hopefully a much larger percentage of the population is vaccinated, local economies are reopened, and people are ready to go out to the movies a little bit bit more even than they are now. So kind of to celebrate that, today Marvel released a big video that announced, basically reminded, hey, you know, theaters are really nice, the theatrical experience is great. It's exactly the sort of thing some people were noting we didn't see much of during the Oscars from the telecast. And one has to wonder if Marvel maybe originally meant to have this air during the Oscars cast.
1: You can definitely feel behind the scene they were stepping carefully with that video. Russ's, as you mentioned, the first half of it before they got in into previewing their upcoming slate, which is... Ton of films in a relatively short period of time. You know, it did emphasize the way that the Marvel movies really work. The act of going to the movie theaters is is a wonderful experience. When they did get to the point of saying, "Hey, these are the movies that are coming out. These are their dates," along with some new titles. For example, Black Panther 2 is now Black Panther: Wakanda Forever. Captain Marvel 2 is now The Marvels. None of those dates made any mention of is this going to be theatrical? Is this going to be day and date? Is this maybe going to be pushed to Disney Plus? You know, they were very I felt conscious of not specifying, which makes sense because I imagine with how – everything's so in flux all the time now they haven't fully decided. But it it was a notable, uh, you know, playing of the cards carefully to me.
0: You know, it is interesting that this also showed off the first footage from Eternals, which is directed by Chloe Zhao, who just won Best Director and whose movie Nomadland just won Best Picture at the Oscars. And there's no mention of those awards wins in this video, which seems kind of notable to me. But maybe...
1: Even though Nomadland was a searchlight release and thus owned by Disney.
0: Yeah, you know, you would think that maybe with Mark. Marvel, the IP is everything, and the fact that it is directed by somebody like Chloe Zhao is great, but it doesn't matter when Marvel is advertising to their audience. They're like, no, we don't even need to point this out. You know, information is out there if you want it, but it's not part of our pitch.
1: That's not why anyone's seeing it.
0: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, they're seeing it for Camille Nanchiani being ripped, is why people are going to see Eternals. That and Angelina Jolie and everything else. What I will say is that this is the sort of video where two years ago, Marvel would have convened a big special event to announce this stuff. You know, they would have done a thing in Hollywood. They would have invited journalists and fans, or they would have done it at Comic Con or at, you know, one of Disney's confabs, you know, or even at CinemaCon. We might have seen this kind of rollout at CinemaCon. But now it is just a video that they email out to people and they put on social media. And ultimately, the thing is, it does the same for them. And so I do kind of wonder if a lot of those big, you know, in-person events might change in the future, because why would they spend that money when they can get their messaging out just as effectively doing what they did this morning?
1: And promote Disney Plus at the same time, if they choose to do so in the future, which they did not for this. Precisely. I mean it's it's interesting, like you say, Daniel, we've been talking so much over this last year about trying to decipher or intuit which of X, Y, and Z is a pandemic play and, and which is going to be more permanent. Definitely we're getting closer, if not close, to the point where we're gonna start seeing some answers to those questions because the industry is Slowly, but hopefully, surely, coming out of hibernation. Specifically, I'm thinking of Europe, where, Daniel, uh, we're looking forward to indoor cinemas in the UK, opening on May 17th. And now uh, we've had some big and positive news regarding France.
2: That's right, Rebecca. May 19th, French cinemas are going to be coming back at 35% capacity. It's an important step for one of the most important markets in Europe And they have a little bit more organized process as opposed to to what we have here in the United States, where it's still a guessing game, for example, on when New York City is going to hit 50% admissions capacity. There's a couple of different ideas on when that could happen. France has laid out a consistent schedule on this tiered reopening. You can find that on our website, boxofficepro.com. And related to that, Rebecca, on what is going to be part of movie going as we start getting out of the pandemic is the issue of private rentals. As we know, private cinema rentals have been a fantastic lifeline for movie theaters over the past year. And as the box office slowly starts to recover here in North America, a lot of exhibitors are asking themselves how is this going to continue? In my business moving forward? How do we make this a long standing part of what we offer audiences without it cannibalizing our revenue? An important question that I think every exhibitor is asking themselves. Right now, we have a fantastic panel that we brought together in one of our Box Office Pro live session webinars with a number of exhibitors and our uh, sponsor partner, GDC. Before we get into that, let's get this sponsor message from GDC in front of you.
1: Coming soon to a mini theater near you, GDC is excited to introduce the award-winning Espideo Supra 5000 RGB Plus laser phosphor cinema projector. It's so small, so light, and so quiet, it can be installed inside the auditorium with no hushbox. Based on proven technologies from Aptronics, Texas Instruments, and GDC technology, Super 5000 makes it more affordable for theater owners to build a mini theater, also making it perfect for private cinema movie theater-like screening at home or even at sea. So what are you waiting for? Get on board with the emerging mini theater market with the Super 5000. Email us-sales at gdc-tech.com or contact your GDC sales representative for further information.
2: Thank you, Rebecca, and thank you, GDC Technology, for sponsoring this week's episode and our live session on box office barometer. So guys, I wanted to provide a little bit of context, a little bit of explanation on what this box office barometer concept is. In our publication, which is now 101 years old, we had a reader's poll where we would ask our exhibitor readers to write in uh, with their votes on their favorite movies, favorite movie stars. We had this for decades. We paused it for whatever reason. I, I really have no idea why we stopped having an initiative like this. But during the pandemic, uh, I remember sitting down with Rebecca and genuinely wondering what exhibitors were thinking about during these months and what their relations were not only to studios but to vendors, a very difficult period. So we decided to come out and start this poll once again, box office barometer. We set up a voting system online so exhibitors could come in, register, and send out their picks for the best companies or the companies they thought performed best in 2020. The results were very surprising. For example, we know that Warner Brothers had that very controversial decision to go day and day with her movies on HBO Max. The majority voted for Warner Brothers as the distributor of the year and as the exhibitor relations department of the year. I think, Rebecca, you and I were both a little bit surprised until we stepped back and realized this is the one studio, along with Universal, that has done a really good job at getting big movies into theaters This past year, they found a way to do it. It might not be the ideal way, but they've already committed that it's going to end that day and date experiment after one year. So we had that surprising result, I guess, less surprisingly, Christopher Nolan's Tenet, a Warner Brothers release being voted film of the year. Rebecca, what were some of the other categories we had and the winners that came through in those categories?
1: For Vendor of the Year, we have Vista Group, which, as our exhibitor friends listening to this podcast will know, have their hand in a number of different pies and really operate kind of across the exhibition technology landscape. Specifically for Tech Vendor of the Year, we have Synionic which Daniel, you and Russ and I know that they've really done an exceptional job this year at keeping in touch with their customer base, communicating. To that end as well, the F&B Vendor of the Year was voted to be Vistar.
2: And in the category of industry figure of the year, we had our colleagues at the National Association of Theater Owners for all the work they've done to protect movie theaters during this extremely difficult year. They came in as the recipients of the box office barometer 2020 industry figure of the year, the only poll voted exclusively by exhibitors. So congratulations on the winners for this year. And then the only category that wasn't voted by exhibitors, that was voted on by our editorial staff here at Box Office Pro, was the cinema trend of the year. And Rebecca, you are currently writing a feature article for our next magazine issue on this topic. Could you let us know what that was?
1: So what we're looking at here are two very interconnected topics, those being micro cinemas and private cinema rentals. This is something that has been around for a while, I think particularly Asia and certain markets of Europe, the private cinema rental concept, and maybe had a smaller mini or micro cinema that you can rent out for a group of, I don't know, 15, 20 people for a special event. That's something that has already existed. Certainly it's something that's already existed in North America in the sense that, you know, any cinema really has a group sales department where you can rent out the cinema for a birthday party or for a corporate event. When the pandemic hit, that process really got streamlined a lot. You saw private cinema rentals really becoming an essential component of small cinemas to the largest chains, being able to stay open, being able to bring customers in. It's really been a lifesaver for a lot of these cinemas. And so we were really excited to speak to Tony Adamson at GDC Technology, and then representatives also from Santicos, Marcus Theaters, Cinepolis USA, and BNB Theaters, both about the success that they've had with private cinema rentals over the last year and change, but also how they expect that trend to evolve and change in a post-pandemic atmosphere. We can start off here, though, with Tony Adamson of GDC, who really puts this private cinema rental micro-cinema trend in a historic context that I think is, is really interesting.
3: We know we all enjoy going to the movies, and we should all see the content on the big screen. But let's take a look at the evolution of the movie theater. And just a real simple overview, you know, early 20th century, was the Grand Movie Palace. In 1963, the multiplex era began with a twin and leading up to, to, you know, 14, 16, 18 plexes. Then in 1995, the megaplex era began with the 24, 30 screen complexes. And now many would say we're kind of in the dine-in era or the entertainment center era. So what's next in the evolution of the movie theater? Well, we feel very strongly that it's the mini theater the mini theater we see as the future. So one of the things that's kind of driven us to this um, conclusion is, is through a lot of research that we've done and a lot of conversations we've had with uh, exhibitors that have mini theaters. But uh, I also found this to be very interesting because we've kind of studied the, the habits of uh, the, the Gen X, Gen Z, and the millennials. Uh, and one of the And back in um, 2018, I found this quote from uh, Helen Lude. Uh, A main takeaway was what gets teenagers to the movie theaters. Being able to see a movie before it's available at home with friends in a cool location. So that kind of says it all. You know, they want to kind of be with their friends. They want to be with their families. They want to text. They want to talk. They want to do this. They want to do that. And and in the mini theater in a private, you know, setting, uh, they get that. So what is the delay uh, in this trend in the US? Well, obviously competition from home, entertainment, uh resistance to change. Uh we're in the dying-in era and, and we're not gonna change. So many exhibitors uh are resistant and but they're just as equal to the amount that are ready to move on to the next era.
0: Tony's quote makes me think of two things. One is that, you know, the very power of the private rental and by extension, the micro cinema is something that we've been discussing on the podcast throughout its entire life cycle. Right, you know, we know that for independent theaters this is a big deal. We know for any mid-sized theater it's a huge deal. And the pandemic has created a really interesting evolution in the way all exhibitors approach the private rental. And so yeah, I think this is a really illuminating quote. And I think that it's been really interesting to see how companies like AMC and Cinemark have done really well with private rentals, with you know, their own variety of creating kind of a micro cinema within a much larger corporate structure. And I would like to think that some version of that is going to continue going forward.
1: I mean, any cinema is a micro cinema, but it's at 25% capacity. Pretty much. <laughs> that's
0: a good point. Yeah, yeah, that's
1: true. Next up, we did hear from Robert Lehman, COO at Santicos Entertainment, um, a chain based out of, of Texas, one of the first chains to reopen in the United States, and uh, a chain that has had great success with private cinema rentals over the last year.
4: You know, back in uh, November, we started uh, getting a lot of requests from our customers about private screenings and, you know. Uh, everybody in the industry started looking at it about the same time. Um, the, uh, our, our friends at uh Cinemark and draft house and AMC jumped on it first. Um, we followed suit very quickly in December and uh, we started uh, in December. We had a uh, 658 private screening rentals that month. We had 54 on Christmas day alone. And uh, I'd say 50 of the 54 were for wonder woman. So, it really took off there uh we had a christmas classic so we played elf uh national lampoon's vacation and it it like i said we we did three different price structures we did a 75 dollars rental we did a 135 rental and then uh, wonder woman we did 175 and we were uh blown away by the number of uh people that uh wanted private rentals, you know, we had 194 alone for Wonder Woman and that was for the month of December. So in six days, uh, 194 private showings. So, um, you know, we, we've adapted over the last three, four months, uh, January, uh, we, we dropped, we had it at seven theaters. We dropped down to our four, uh, four theaters, our big ones, uh, basically twice a day, um, every day. Uh, or I'm sorry, two auditoriums every day. Uh, and you know, we did another 316 there and you know, a lot of the Christmas movies were already gone by then. And you know, February, we, we just, we kept moving and changing the way we were doing adapting like everybody does, um, for the last year, uh, crisis management. We've all done very well with that. And, uh, you know, so right now, you know, uh, in February, we have introduced it to hook up your PlayStation four or five Xbox. And last month in March, we had, you know, we had 43 private rentals uh, on just Mm -hmm. that alone.
0: Listening to Robert's quote, the one thing that, you know, you kind of said a second ago that at 25%, every cinema is a micro cinema. But also, you know, seeing that, oh, the Draft House was one of the chains that went towards the private rentals really early in the pandemic. The Draft House opening in Los Angeles was a big deal at the end of 2019. And that theater also is kind of a micro cinema by design where I think the largest house seats like 60 people because of their downtown location, which had a lot of physical constraints. And they have some much smaller rooms Rooms there. And you know, we're too late to ask the question now about whether or not we're going to see a difference in the way cinemas are built going forwards. But some things like seeing the LA experience with the draft house makes me wonder if we might even see some smaller cinemas by design.
2: And of course, the auditorium is only part of the equation, right? The physical space is important, but you also have to make sure that, that the customer journey, including the ticket buying experience, is streamlined. And easy, and it's something, Rebecca, that we've been covering here uh, a lot, really, in the last five to ten years, in just how e-commerce has revolutionized not only uh, audience analytics but also the experience of buying a ticket, of finding a showtime. Really, the internet and e-commerce has made that a very, very different system. And ever since I started covering Exhibition uh, in this job in 2013, one of my contacts in the industry that's really helped me understand the role of group sales and private rentals has been the VP of sales at Marcus Theaters, Clint Wisielowski, who I've known for many years now, uh, someone that I've learned a lot from. And it was great having him on this panel. I asked him about that, how the group sales dynamic has changed. This is something that he has looked over at a top circuit like Marcus for a number of years now. And he mentioned that a dedicated online ticketing portal really made a difference for Marcus Theaters during the pandemic in really pushing a lot of these private restaurants rentals.
5: And it's made all the difference, right? So I, you know, as much as I love my crew and, and our group sales department, once we automated this system and allowed people to come in through our, what we're calling our microsite, um, it it dramatically changed the numbers for us. It, it, it again, allowed us to, with, with greatly depleted staff based on, you know, all the furloughs we had to, to monetize these private rentals. It, it, it really did make a huge difference. We set it up such that The show times appear on both our traditional website and our and our microsite. We have triggers involved, so we limit it by seat count, COVID seat counts in the auditorium, and times of day. So it's also controlled in the field. We set up attributes and price cards based on the feature. So we run from ninety nine for catalog titles through one forty nine for season first run and one seventy five for the the first run titles that come out. All of those are clearly marked on the microsite when you get to our microsite, you're no longer on our website. You're, you're involved in this, in this little microcosm of your ability to manage it yourself. That allowing that guest to make that purchase from beginning to end with no interaction from me, it makes it much faster, much cleaner, and much easier for us to execute.
2: And that was Clint Wosilowski, the VP of Sales at Marcus Theaters. Some very interesting insights there as it relates to making it easy for the customer to do this online. I don't know about you guys, but before the pandemic, I didn't know too many people that would go out and rent their own cinema. It was something that maybe a corporate department at a big company would do. Now it's something that families are doing. Now it's something that the regular consumer has access to making that Easy, making it in a process that's not intimidating has been crucial for movie theaters during this time. And related to that, uh, we were able to get additional insight from Annalise Holyoke, the National Director of Marketing and Communications at Cinepolis USA, who came in and really went into detail on what about these private rentals she expects to work and what won't work after the covid crisis.
6: I don't think the concept is going away anytime soon, but for us it's really shifted, you know, away from those prime time hours. Prior to covid, you know, our company was doing thousands of private events every year and primarily corporate, but I think we always all joked that one of the most you know, the most time-consuming events were those, like, kids' birthday parties that were really not spending any money. And our, you know, highly paid sales team was focusing way too much attention on that. And I think this has been a game-changer for us now that we've gotten it online, you know, to still have that Saturday morning, 11 a.m. spot that if you want to have your kid's birthday party, you can book it online yourself. And quite frankly, we're just not going to help you, (laughs) you know, core clowns and all these other things that they want to do. If you want to go that route, you'll have to, you know, go have a higher food and beverage minimum and book with our team. But in general, the, the hardest part for us now is that with capacity going up to 50% in California, it doesn't really make sense for us to continue offering those prime time slots, but the mm-hmm. demand is there. And people are kind of frustrated that they can't get you know, a theater for four people or even 20 people when now that capacity is up to 50%, it really makes more sense for us to just have it as a regular show.
0: I have to say, listening to Annalisa's quote, it's remarkable to me that any theater would ever have helped me coordinate a clown.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That was an option this whole time, Russ. I didn't know that.
0: I didn't know that. And now you're telling me that's gone. A thing I didn't even know was available is now gone. And it's honestly, it's just a little bit rude to put it across that way. But I will say it's remarkable to me that any company like this, you know, for an exhibitor whose you know entire structure is dedicated towards showing movies and selling concessions, that there would be any extra things like, oh, we're going to help you do more to coordinate your birthday party is kind of astonishing and makes sense to me on every level that they would say, you know what? We can just do this simple structure of this through a website now and we're going to let our guests figure out all the rest of it because... Yeah, obviously that's the way that you should do that.
1: It's not a good use of our time. I mean, that said, definitely since it's become streamlined and and easy to do, I've – disclosure, I have not done a private cinema rental. I've looked it up, but I think by the time it got to the point where cinemas were open in New York, you know, it was – too expensive. The theaters were there, the films were there, but it, it had reached a point where the financial viability of the price point at which it makes sense for the theaters to do this was just too high. And you know, a part of that is the market that I'm based in, New York compared to other cities. It's The movie tickets aren't cheap compared to the national average. But I think maybe in that experience, what we're seeing is a glimpse into maybe what private cinema rentals will be like in the future. You know, maybe they'll be a little bit more boutique, a little bit special, a little bit certainly pricier. A cinema is not going to want to rent out a cinema to 20 people when they can just have a public screening and, and definitely earn more money on it. It makes sense. At the same time, you know, what we learned in our panel is even if the infrastructure of private cinema rentals is going to change and indeed has already started changing, you know, there is a role for it moving forward, maybe in a more specialized form. That's something that was spoken on by Chris Tickner, the director of marketing and special events at b theaters.
7: But we've also been able to shift people to those Monday through Thursday dates. We've been able to shift people to those off-peak showtimes uh, for some of those like retro titles or obviously you know, booking for, you know, all of the new products that are coming out. We do expect that to sort of continue on uh, with with uh, May releases to not have as many spots available for those. But we do think that um, people will still be buying for the new titles, even if it's at a higher rate, especially since a lot of our locations do have some smaller auditoriums that we can utilize for that, and we'll continue to grow, I think, like Clint said, to getting back to our, you know, $800, 1500 $2,000 events when we're able to fill up our auditoriums at 100%. But we still have, you know, 80% of our locations at B&B are recliners. So we always have, you know, a 30 to 40 seat auditorium that we've sold thousands of these screenings to. So I think they're going to come back to watch uh, a movie on that 35 seat theater. So it might be an ongoing revenue stream. They may not get, you know, Avengers on an opening weekend, but we'll tell them, hey, you can get that 30 seat auditorium two weeks after. They'll be like, okay, I'll watch it opening weekend and then I'll come back to my private rental two weeks after. So And that was Chris Tickner, the
2: director of marketing and special events at B Theaters, talking about the future of private rentals for a top 10 circuit like B&B. Uh, yeah, I'm very curious to see how this concept evolves. I think, Rebecca, you mentioned it earlier, that by the time that cinema's opened here in New York City, it was so late into the pandemic that we really didn't have that many opportunities to rent a private auditorium for ourselves. A lot of the shows were already operating on a general admissions basis. I think the other factor we have to consider is this is probably something for big friend groups or for families. I personally have like three friends here in New York City. Especially during the pandemic, I've lost touch with a lot of people. So in a city where everywhere you go, you're used to just seeing strangers. And a lot of my social life ends up being in big public places. Having a big, robust group of people to go and and split the price of renting an auditorium, I think that's a better fit in communities where people maybe aren't as transient here, like in New York City, where both of us, Rebecca, we moved here in our late 20s, basically once we started our careers, as opposed to places where people are more established or have families. Or maybe I'm just a loser. Russ, what has been your experience with private rentals so far?
0: My experience is also unfortunately a little bit different than it would have been because we've been living in a city that is not the place I usually live. So none of my friend group is here. You know, it basically existed in a very small family unit for almost a year now, which is my wife, my infant, now toddler child, and her parents. And so, no, I haven't done a private rental because while I'm in a state where theaters were open and I could have done it, I don't really know anybody here. So it's kind of like, okay, so you know, three of the four, someone would have to stay home with our child because we're just not going to take him to the movies right now because he's just too young. So three of the four of us could go rent a room to watch a movie, which Which basically means we're gonna go pay to do the thing we're just doing with the same people at home, and it's like, it just doesn't make sense for us, you know. Which is unfortunate because I would have liked to do the experience had my wife and I still been in L.A. where we have our friend group. Then yeah, we would have looked into some version of this when it was an option in the L.A. area. I know people who did, and they really liked it. Like a lot of my friends have done private rentals, and I know that it was a, a pleasant experience for them. But unfortunately. Here at the podcast, we have a collective track record of zip with this due to a variety of different circumstances.
1: And I got to hope that that'll be the case for a lot of people where there's word of mouth and they see that this can happen and it is happening and they get excited about it. I mean, that's the position I'm in where, you know, my birthday is is in October. and, And Russ, as you mentioned, the Alamo in LA has, you know, mostly small auditoriums. The Brooklyn location, too. There are some Pretty small auditoriums where they typically do more, you know, specialty niche programming. Uh, Alamo has had great success with private cinema rentals and. You know, I don't know come October what the situation will be, what the price point will be, but that's definitely something that I'm looking forward to, potentially uh, spending a, you know, a birthday weekend renting out a, a movie theater, renting out an auditorium, and forcing my friends to watch whatever I want them to watch for 90 minutes, and I am going to intentionally choose the worst movie that I can find. And everyone listening to this podcast has an open invitation October 10th. Let's get it going.
2: You have to give us a programming preview there. The same question goes, to you Russ what's going to be the private rental title that you guys pick
0: oh man i oof. i will say that just prior to the pandemic it wasn't my last movie experience before covid but one of the last movie experiences i had before covid was a friend renting out one of the draft house theaters in LA for his birthday. And he showed, and I've talked about this on the pod before, he showed Showgirls with a comedian's commentary and it was extremely entertaining. We all had a great time. I don't know what my private rental would be. I mean, it's. I'm just going to say Dune because I think that's expected of me at this point. But, you know, I think that everybody needs a refresher on David Lynch's version of Dune before the new one comes out. So that might be my my choice would be, uh, you know, David Lynch's Dune.
1: Daniel, I'm guessing a Rocky.
0: Oh no,
2: everyone's seen Rocky. I mean, if you've watched 30 seconds of television over the last 30 years, you have caught Rocky in some way, shape, and form.
0: I saw the end of Rocky on TV last night. For real, no joke.
2: Yeah, no, it's it's always, it's perpetually on basic cable. I would approach the programming a little bit creatively, some things that are harder to catch. A title that I really like that I don't know if it's even available in any way, shape, and form here in the United States is one of Luis Buñuel's Mexican movies, Ensayo de un Crimen. I believe the English title is The Criminal Life of Archibald de la Cruz.
0: Yes. So you've great. caught it, Russ. I own it on DVD. Oh, wonderful. I didn't even know it was available in English language. I bought it at Kim's Video Ooh. in New York a long time, probably 20, 25 years ago. And it's a double. It's that movie and then his movie, L. Very good as well, yeah. yeah.
2: So yeah, that's a title that I think offers some, how could we call it, it's a madcap... A serial killer comedy. It's just very interesting, especially right now with a lot of the conversations. I think in the United States would make uh, an interesting movie to have a group of friends watch and discuss and have fun and, and have some interesting conversations on.
0: Or show his movie, uh, The Exterminating Angel, which is about a bunch <laughs> of people who go to a dinner party and discover they can't leave, which is basically what we have all done for the past year. So you know. This is a true story, actually, as you mentioned, that in one of my professors in
2: graduate school, Bob Stam, what he would do anytime he screened that in classes, he would leave the classroom and lock the door from the outside. So after you watch it, all these undergrads would watch this movie for the first time, try to get out and door's lock. I always found that to be a, a think- nice immersive
0: I know I've mentioned that movie on the podcast before, and you've probably told that story on the podcast before, but it's a good story. It's a good one, right? And so we're going to keep it in because I like it, and I want to take inspiration from that and do the same thing with a group of people now.
1: I have to say my pick would be slightly less psychologically traumatizing, hopefully. (laughs) I would go with a movie that shares my birth year. It's called Gwendolyn or The Adventures of Gwendolyn in the Land of the Yik-Yak. Which is based on a on a French comic series, but it actually when you look at the movie, it, it's a straight oh Indiana Jones did really well, so we're gonna do a complete you know rip off of this oh. kind of adventure archaeologist. But it stars Tawny Katane, so imagine, like, a gender-swapped Indiana Jones with a lot of, you know, weird quasi-BDSM stuff built in. It's definitely a movie that I like to force friends to watch because it is exceptionally strange and, and, and weird and fun. And, yeah, the more people I can force to see on the biggest screen I can manage, the better.
0: <laughs> I saw that movie in the theater Ugh. in 1984 when I was a child. What? Because it looked like an Indiana Indiana Jones. I mean, if you look up the poster for that movie, it is.
1: They're totally they are completely. But then you look at subsequent <laughs> DVD, Blu-ray releases. And like it's by Yust Yakin. It's by the guy who directed Emmanuel. Like yes. they in oh, okay. in in the subsequent cult life of the movie, they are clearly ramping up the. This is Indiana Jones, but it's sexy. Yes. yes. Also, a guy gets his ears ripped off. Like oh, yeah. it's it's such an odd blend.
2: To be fair, it sounds like something I would love watching as a child. Oh, exactly. <laughs> 60, exactly like Indiana that. Jones when I'm 12, absolutely. How many
0: tickets? Yeah, I mean, the, the poster is a magnificent ripoff. It's like it fakes the font of the Raiders of the Lost Ark logo and the style of Drew Struzan painted style that was you know used for a lot of movie posters in the early mid-80s. You know, the Raiders, some of the Star Wars movies, even like Romancing the Stone, I think he did, a bunch of things like that. Romancing the Stone also basically an Indiana Jones knockoff, but a very good one.
1: I mean, this whole last year, it's it, for me, it's been a case of seeing a lot of older films and I would like to cherry pick the ones I wish I'd seen on the big screen and maybe do a, do a private cinema rental for the just the cream of the crop, like Gwendolyn, just the 10 out of 10 trash.
2: <laughs> well, we'll have our opportunity to do that in all our upcoming birthdays through this private rental option. Russ, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us once again.
0: Wait, who joined who? Did I join you? Did you join me? Oh yeah, no, this? my bad. Uh,
2: yeah, it, it gets confusing with this co-host setup, right? <laughs> <laughs> but to our audience, thanks again for listening in. This is the Box Office Podcast, produced by the Box Office Company and Record Edit Podcast. Don't forget to rate us, to review us, and we will be back next Thursday with another episode. Thanks again.